I invite you, if you have your Bibles, take them out, turn them on. Uh, Join me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we took a break last week to celebrate the Lord's Supper together uh, as we came to what is one of the natural break points in the book of Galatians. But we're picking up this morning in a sermon series that we have titled Set Free, Live Free, uh, because that is very much the declaration of uh, Paul's message through the church at Galatia. And as we're getting ready this morning to look at these verses in Galatians 3, I just want to have a question for you. Has there ever been a point in your life when you've been duped? I mean, like swindled, conned, you know, um, and, 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 and taken for granted. There was a point, as many of you know, when, when Sarah and I, when I, when I was in seminary in Louisville and Sarah and I uh, were living there, I was working for Starbucks. And there was one night late in the evening where a gentleman came in and he bought his $5 cup of coffee with a $100 bill, which is ridiculous, right? But anyway, so he was there. It was later in the evening. We're trying to get a bunch of things cleaned up. And so uh, he, he pays me this $100 bill. I I've been a bank teller. I count out the change. I give it to him, and and I know, at least I think, that it's right. He turns away from me to go to leave the to go around to the other side of the counter where he can pick up his drink, and immediately turns back and says, "Hey, you shorted me twenty dollars." And what he had done in that move is he had taken the bottom twenty and folded it over and palmed it and showed me six twenties when there should have been or three twenties when there should have been four. And in the moment, everything where it's just me and one other person, and it's late, and it's whatever, and, and I know that I'm fallible, I'm whatever, so okay, yeah, maybe I missed it, and, and I've been distracted. So without doing the shutdown, because what a burden it would be, I'm leaving this person who's, not, who's a brand new employee on the floor, run to the back of the, the house, and actually par out my till and find out whether or not it's true. I grabbed an extra 20, said, I'm so sorry, and I gave it to him and moved on. But at the end of the night, when I did have to par my till, guess what? There's $20, $20 gone. And even just a couple of weeks ago, now I caught myself on this one, I woke up early one morning and I had a notification from an app that we've used before in student ministry. It's called GroupMe. It's a group texting app. And it was a a thing from this this GroupMe page that said, hey, we're giving away a free iMac Pro, right? And we just need you to register for this thing and and you're good to go and, and we'll get you in the drawing and there we go. And so I get through the process, but when it finally comes to the screen where it says, hey, I need your credit card information so that you can cover the shipping, I said, whoa. But then realized I already put my name and my email address and everything else. I backed out of it, I double checked it, and I haven't had any problems at that particular point. But the truth of the matter is, it can be really easy. There are scams all over the place. And if we are not alert, what can happen is that we can fall prey to someone's deception. And the key in all of these cons is there is something, whether it's a magician or a con man or anything else, there is something that they do that distracts you from what is ultimately important. Maybe it is waving something in front of you like a new car or a new computer. Or maybe it is a, a level of intimidation. Hey, you didn't give me the money that I deserve or that, I, that is mine. And in that, what they do is they take your eyes off of what is ultimately, uh, that you're supposed to be focused on, and in doing so, they deceive you, they trick you, they swindle you. And this not only happens in our, in our day-to-day lives, it happens oftentimes most dangerously in our spiritual lives. As we are each and every one easily prone and vulnerable to spiritual manipulation, especially and always, really, when we take our eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And in our verses this morning, that's exactly what Paul is addressing to the churches of Galatia, that they have been, he is flabbergasted because they have easily been hoodwinked and manipulated by false teachers. And that's a word of warning to you and to me as well. So look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read the first 14 verses together this morning. Paul opens with this exasperation. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that those of faith who are the son know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we understand that the words that we just read were inspired by your Spirit and left to us that as we read them, Heavenly Father, we might find in them the life-giving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are just as pertinent to us today as they were to the Galatian churches then, and they are just as powerful for us today as they were to the Galatian churches then. So Holy Spirit, may you manifest your presence in this place. May you work in our hearts to expose the ways that we are prone to sin, ways that we are vulnerable to spiritual manipulation, for the ways, Heavenly Father, that we have taken our focus off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would refocus us this morning for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I know we have uh, many guests. Most of them are my family, so I get to just kind of speak up to them right now and catch them up a little bit uh, to where we have been. And then also maybe for you, this will be just a healthy recap since we took last week to focus on the Lord's Supper. As we've been walking through the book of Galatians, Galatians is perhaps the very first letter that Paul wrote, is perhaps the oldest letter and oldest New Testament book. And Paul is writing not to a church, but to a region uh, with many churches, a region uh, filled with churches that he personally planted and preached to. And he's not been gone very long, maybe about 18 months to, to two years, when he hears word that the churches that he planted are being polluted by false teaching. And so there is an urgency in Paul as Paul writes this letter to combat this different gospel that is being preached among the Galatian churches by false teachers and false prophets. 
And the, what we can gather as best we can is that these, these false prophets were coming into these Gentile Christian churches and they were questioning the gospel that Paul preached. Essentially saying that in some way Paul had watered down the gospel that the other apostles were preaching for the sake of the, the conscience and the, and the shame of the Gentiles. He wanted to make it super easy for them because he had left out the notion that the, as Gentiles they needed to first convert to Judaism and adhere to all of the laws and, re, and religious rituals of the Old Testament Jewish practices before they could really be children of God. Because after all, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jesus followed the Jewish laws. Jesus came, he said, to fulfill the law. And so if we are going to become like Jesus, we must first and foremost become like him physically in his heritage. Paul is writing to say that is a lie, a lie that will send you to hell. And so, in the first two chapters, Paul was concerned to defend the authority of his gospel. Because his, his preaching and his authority has been questioned. And so, Paul in chapters 1 and 2 proclaims that the message that he taught was not man's gospel. Instead, it originated with God. It was confirmed by God in the fact that it was not added to by any of the other apostles. And then it also, it showed itself in power as Paul had the audacity, not because of his person or his position, but because of the truth of the gospel that he proclaimed. Paul confronted Peter himself when Peter's actions were out of step with the gospel. And so he defends the authority. And now in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is moving away from defending the authority of his gospel to defining the content of his gospel. And so he begins to explain in these next two chapters the, the truth of the gospel that he first preached by reminding them of what he had already preached to them. And so this this transition into chapter 3 flows right out of chapter 2 where Peter, again, had confronted Peter, or I mean, Paul had confronted Peter because Peter had been duped, he had been distracted, and in doing so, he had adopted a behavior that was out of step with the gospel. And Paul's response to Peter and the way that he confronted him was not to tell him, Peter, you got to do better. Peter, you got to act better. Peter, you've got to be better. Instead, he said, Peter, you've got to believe better. And so he reminds even Peter as he reminds the Galatians of the truth of the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul jumps into, into chapter 3, as he's, again, just exasperated. He's flabbergasted that these Galatians have been so easily bewitched. Verse 1. You've been duped. You've been hoodwinked. It's like someone has cast some hypnotizing spell over you and you are just absolutely have lost your minds. And he said, not only that, but these are the ones, according to verse 1, that before their eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, we don't know. I wish that I studied and I tried because I, I, I was confused by that too. What does that mean? Did they like act it out? Was, there a, was this the first picture of the, of the passion play in front of the Galatians, right? Or anything like that? And, and we don't really know. But what's very clear is that the centrality of the cross was displayed and the Galatians understood it. That's what Paul is communicating here, is that everything boiled down to the centrality of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that the Galatian church understood that. 
They got the centrality of the cross, and it was by their faith in the centrality of the cross that their lives were changed. As I said, the the actions of a con man is to attempt to pull our focus off of what really matters so that he can do some sleight of hand off out of our line of sight and off of our attention that then will blow our minds. And Paul says that really kind of that's exactly what's happened here. You've been hoodwinked. You've been, been hypnotized. And so much so that you have lost focus on the most important evidence of the fact that you are saved and you are beloved by God. Right? These false teachers have come in and essentially they're distracting the Galatian Christians with either promises of extra blessings if they would adhere to Jewish customs such as circumcision and following certain practices and adhering to certain festivals. Or maybe on the other side, they're threatening them with saying that you are somehow less than children of God because you haven't done all of these things. And that's got the the Galatian Christians in this, this place of anxiety And they have been so focused on these these proclaimed blessings or these perceived threats that they have lost focus on the fact that they have the Holy Spirit. Paul peppers them with four rhetorical questions. The purpose of a rhetorical question is to ask you something so obvious that you don't actually have to answer it out loud. And in every one of these questions, look at the very first one. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? The assumption there is you have the Holy Spirit. You received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. Did you receive him because you were circumcised and you followed these things? Or did you receive the Holy Spirit because you believed in the cross of Jesus Christ? Not only did the Holy Spirit live inside of them, the Holy Spirit was functioning among them. As Paul goes on to ask, is the one who is doing miracles among you doing them by works of the law or by faith? Not only do they have just the Holy Spirit among them, like we would say we are today, the Holy Spirit is showing up and performing miracles through them. And we see here the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Galatian churches, and yet they are so distracted by these false teachers of these promises that they've turned away from the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, altogether. And what a dangerous place That is, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit by their efforts or by behavior or by their adherence to a set of cultural principles or rituals. They received him by faith. And the sad reality of the modern church is that in a lot of ways, this is exactly where we are. And so as we think about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Galatian church and Paul's reminder of his presence in their hearts and in their midst, we need to take from this passage of Scripture the bold and clear reminder that we need to remember the Holy Spirit. We've forgotten the Holy Spirit. There's a reason that Francis Chan titled his book on the Holy Spirit, The Forgotten God. But the truth of the matter is, I don't really think that the Holy Spirit is forgotten so much as he's just neglected in the majority of our conservative churches because we're so afraid of being seen as cuckoo that we've just turned our back on the Holy Spirit altogether and we're continuing to try to do in our own strength what God does by the Holy Spirit and to 
focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and to focus on Christ is not to miss the Holy Spirit. Instead, it is actually the result of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus himself said in John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. It's better that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I remember a couple of years ago when Pastor Derek Smith over at Living Hope Baptist Church was teaching through uh, Scripture and on the Holy Spirit. One of the things that he said in that series that stood out to me so powerfully is he said, if given the choice, right here, right now, would you rather have Jesus standing beside you or the Spirit inside of you? And most of us would say, well, duh, I'd rather have Jesus right here. And yet the 12 apostles had Jesus right there beside him for three years, and Jesus said, hey, guess what? It's better that I leave. Because the spirit inside of you is better than me beside of you. And yet so many of us have neglected the person of the Holy Spirit. We devalue his person. We talk about him as an it instead of a him. The third person of the Trinity, someone that we can grieve. Someone that has a will. Someone that has a mission and a ministry. We underestimate his ministry. His ministry is to convict us of our sin, to convict us of right, the standards of righteousness, to convict us of the coming judgment, John 16, verses 8 through 11. His ministry is to lead us into all truth, John 16, 13. His ministry is to sanctify us, according to what Paul says here in verse 3. Are you now being perfected by the flesh when your perfection was begun by the Spirit? He's here and he's in our life, and he is perfecting us. He is here to empower and to clarify our prayers, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 23. He is here to empower our work in gospel ministry, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But most importantly, and the single most significant ministry of the Holy Spirit, is that he is here to point us to Jesus again and again and again and again, every single time that we get distracted. And every single time that we look to something that is less than Jesus before Jesus. Because that's what Jesus says his ministry is in John 16, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The purpose in the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, to constantly point our attention to him. The Holy Spirit isn't here to get a whole bunch of attention. The Holy Spirit is here to be a mirror that reflects us and drives our attention and our affection back to Jesus Christ and empower us to lead others to Jesus Christ. We are always vulnerable to spiritual distraction and gospel amnesia, which is why we must be those who know and rely on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit each and every day, day in, day out, moment by moment, is here to bring us back to the feet of Jesus at the foot of the cross. And when we try to live this life by our own efforts and ingenuities and not by faith, we live under a curse, as we're going to see, but when we do, we become participants, receivers of this ancient blessing, this promise that was given to Abraham. And so Paul moves from the presence of the Holy Spirit into this promise that was given to Abraham in verses 7 through 9. Verse 6 is that transition statement, and it's the point where Paul makes it clear that the reception of God's presence and his blessing has always been by faith. He says, guys, this isn't anything new. The question of whether or not of what was the standard of Abraham's righteousness and his, and his righteousness being that he is welcomed into declared just as if he had never sinned before the Lord is his faith. Paul quotes in verse 6, Genesis chapter 15, where 
God spoke to Abraham and gave him the promise that even though he and his wife were old and they were well beyond the age of being able to have children, that God would bless them in such a way that they would have a child. That child would then, would then grow in such a way that no one would ever be able to number the heirs of Abraham. And it says in that moment, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Guess what didn't exist at that point? The law. Circumcision. Following any of the rules. That all came. Circumcision didn't come up until Genesis 17, two chapters later. Abraham wasn't counted as righteous because he did the right thing. He was counted as righteous and welcomed and received the promise of God because he believed God. And that then becomes the avenue which he then is the source of blessing that God flows his blessing through to all of the world. Dr. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, chronicles their, he and his wife's adoption of their two oldest sons and a lot of the, the struggle that people in their lives had and how even time he chronicles how insensitive people can be. And the whole purpose of the book is to come even here into Galatians as we will see what it is to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. And one of the questions that he said they used to get all the time from church members and others, especially later when they had biological children, as people would come up and they would say, okay, well, which one are yours? Which ones are, are yours? Dr. Moore's answer is, all five of them? Well, you, you know what I mean. As if somehow the biological children were somehow more their children than the ones who had been legally adopted and claimed and brought into their name and brought into their family. As though they were somehow lesser sons. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly what these false teachers are doing to the Galatian Christians. That because you haven't come through the bloodline or followed after the practices of Abraham and his children, namely that you've been circumcised, you are somehow lesser children in God's family. And so you need to adhere to all of these extra things, Jesus and all of these religious rituals, in order for you to be fully accepted by God. And that is the question that drives the entire book of Galatians, is what is the basis of our acceptance with God? And it's not rules and rituals, but is instead it is faith, because that is all that it took for Abraham to be accepted by God. And that is the promise for you and for me, and it was that he believed that God had the ability to do the impossible, not only for him, but through him to the rest of the world, that we might be blessed as the descendant of Abraham fulfilled all of the promises of God, namely Jesus Christ. And so, as we apply this, just like Abraham, we need to not only remember, we need to believe in the promises of God. We need to remember whose we are. When we suffer this gospel amnesia, this spiritual amnesia, what we're really forgetting is whose we are. Who we are and whose we are. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says that because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you and in our place, we now receive from him a brand new identity, namely that of sons of God. Co-heirs with Christ. From here into all of eternity, what is Jesus's is mine. Because according to 1 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin, that I might become the righteousness of God. Adopted as sons and co-heirs such that I am in Christ, such that when God looks at me, he does not see a sinner, he sees a son. 
washed clean. And as we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 10, perpetually being cleansed and sanctified such that there is never a moment in my life, no matter what it is that I do, that I am somehow separated from God's grace. Because the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ has this ongoing, moment-by-moment, instantaneous way of cleansing us before the Lord. So when we are trying to do in our own strength what only God can do by his grace, we're refusing to rest in our identity in Jesus Christ. We're refusing to embrace our identity as God's children. We are refusing to live out our understanding of the gospel and its implications for our lives. So we need to remember the promises of God that come through Jesus Christ and who we are and whose we are. To remember who I am and whose I am despite my shame and whatever it is that Satan might be whispering in my ear. It's to remember what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. It's to rest in him completely. And Paul moves then beyond in the final verses that we studied this morning, verses 10 through 14, beyond just the, pres- the promises uh, to Abraham into the problem now when we have turned from the promise of God and we've turned from faith into the problem that is the law. I've said this to certain people um, in the past. I know my personality well enough to know that I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a genius, or I'm not, you know, I don't have the gift of ingenuity or anything else. You give me a system, I can run it all day long. I could probably make it even better. But you ask me to create something that doesn't currently exist, I'll tell you what, COVID was a blow my mind and identity crisis because it's all of a sudden everything is changing and we can't do ministry the way that we've always been doing it. And so thinking outside of the box, that's not my gift. You give me a system that works, I'll run it all day long, and like I said, I might be able to prove it. But I'm a rule follower. I'm the instruction follower. When there's something that gets put together, I swallow my pride. I pull out the manual, and I say, they know what they're doing. I'm going to do what they say, and guess what? Every single time that I do it, it goes together the way that it's supposed to. And it's easier than if I try to just make it up. And that's my tendency, and I think that that's all of our tendency when it comes to our spirituality and to our Christianity, that if you will just give me a system of do's and don'ts and rules, tell me where I'm supposed to be, when I'm supposed to be there, how often I'm supposed to pray, how much of my check I'm supposed to actually tithe to the church. Is it 10%? Is it 25%? Is it first fruits? Is it what is it? Just give me the system, and I'll work it. And that's what a lot of people are doing. They're working a religious system and not living in the messiness that is a relationship with God. Some are working the system better than others. But some are struggling under the weight of it because what Paul says is that when we try to turn our relationship with Jesus Christ into a system, we find ourselves under a curse. And he says the reason for that according to verse 10, is that everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law is cursed. All things. All things. I think last time I checked, there's something like 600 plus different commands in the Old Testament that we're supposed to keep. And when we try to live by the law, even if it's under certain individual ones of them, we find ourselves overwhelmed. Here's, just put it in perspective. Adam and Eve only had one. Just one. Don't eat from that tree. Just one. And they 
flunked it. When I've talked with students before, I've asked them the question, imagine this, if you had, in order for you to pass your grade level this year, you had to make a 100% on every assignment and every test in order for you to get to the next grade level, would you be able to do it? And in that little time, there might be one or two like, that were a whole lot like me, arrogant and proud and everything else when they were little, and they'll raise their hand, yeah, I could do it. And then I ask the next question, okay, well, what about this? What if the standard for you to get from kindergarten through 12th grade was a 100% on every single assignment all the way through? Could you graduate? Because the standard, brothers and sisters, isn't good. It's perfect. That's God's standard. To break even one is to be worthy of separation from God for all of eternity. To be punished. That's God's standard. That's why trying to follow a system of rules and rituals is not just a burden, it's a curse. And when we try to take this relationship and boil it down into a system that we can work, we're turning from Jesus into ourselves. And we need to remember, I'm not big enough for this fight. And we need to remember Jesus. Since no one can keep the law, no one can be justified by the law, is what Paul goes on to say in verse 11. But then he says the glorious good news of the gospel, according to verse 13, that changes everything, is Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By being the one who perfectly followed the law and did not deserve the curse of the law, and yet chose to bear upon himself the curse of the law that you deserve and I deserve as he took our place, being the one, Paul says, who is cursed by being hanged upon a tree, hanged in our place. He comes full circle. You see where he started? He started with Galatians. Remember, the cross was clearly portrayed and proclaimed. You've forgotten the cross. He works through faith versus law. It's always been about faith with Abraham. It's faith that unlocks the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And all of that comes faith in what? The cross of Jesus Christ. He comes full circle in his argument, comes, starts with Christ crucified, ends with Christ crucified, and he says in verse 14, so that Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He starts with the rhetorical questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? Do you have powers and miracles by works of the law or by faith? He answers the question right here. We receive the Spirit through faith. Faith in what? The gospel. The good news that takes the weight of the curse of the law off of our shoulders and sets us free. We have been, Paul says, set free free in Jesus Christ because he has borne the punishment that we deserve and he now gives us the life that we don't. Everything that keeping the law could not do, Christ did for us in his life and in his ministry and in his death and in his resurrection. And let's finish it out in his ascension. As he sits even now at the right hand of the Father, praying for us when we fail and cheering for us when we're living in faith. So the answer to the burden and the weight of a system of rule following, again, is not be better. It's not make better choices. It's not do better, act better. 
It's simply believe better. Because when you believe in yourself, as good as you might be, you're never good enough. But Jesus is. So remember Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. By faith, he will then unlock the blessing of Abraham, which in its fullness is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life. So essentially, Paul says this, according to Tom Schreiner, since the Galatians have the Holy Spirit, they enjoy the blessing of Abraham. And if they enjoy the blessing of Abraham, they are members of Abraham's family. And if they are part of Abraham's family by receiving the Spirit, they do not need to submit to circumcision or the law in order to become part of God's family. It all comes down to faith. The belief that even a five-year-old can proclaim. So my question as I conclude is simply this. Who is Jesus for you? In what way are you allowing the darkness of the world, the games of the politicians, the problems of COVID, the debates and the debacles and the, of the denominational stuff in churches, or even the problems in your own family, to hoodwink you by distracting you from Jesus? And my call to every single one of us today is to turn from my sin and from myself. That's repentance and come back to Jesus. Because that's not just the way into the Christian life. That's the way of the Christian life. So how do you need to repent today? How do you need to trust in Jesus today? I invite you, if you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes and spend some time in the presence of the Lord and the Holy Spirit and simply ask that question, God, what do I need to turn from today? How do I need to trust in Jesus today? Take that moment and I'll close this in prayer.